0: You have a little John Newton quote in your bulletin, if you had a bulletin this morning. It's a quote that Pastor Joe Miller uh, usually has attached to the bottom of his uh, email, at least in part. John Newton said, Although my memory's fading, and I resemble that remark. I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Yet before I get to Ephesians 2, it has been probably close to six months since I have last preached here, and many more months than that before I began preaching in Ephesians 1. I don't know, I didn't count the sermons, probably a dozen or more. So I wanted to give you a very simplistic run through Ephesians 1. After the apostles greeting and salutation in verses one and two, he moves immediately into a doxology, which includes verses three through 14. It is a praise to God for God's redemptive work, this plan of redemption that precedes the creation of the heavens and the earth. It goes back into eternity past. And it extends on into eternity future. In verses 4 through 6, the Apostle Paul speaks of God the Father's having chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then in verse 6, To the praise of His glorious grace. Then in verses 7 through 12, we see God the Son who has redeemed us by His blood. That's in time and history. And in verse 12, to the praise of His glory. And then in verses 13 and 14, we see God the Holy Spirit who seals us and is the guarantee of our inheritance. And that looks forward to eternity future. And again in verse 14, to the praise of His glory. Now that was the summary of the first portion of chapter 1. Then the second portion of chapter 1, Paul breaks out in prayer for the saints. He loved these people and he was praying for them. Um, He was giving thanksgiving and interceding for them that they would understand the fullness of, of the mysteries of God. And then... Chapter 2 begins. Looking again at God's plan of redemption. Looking at it in three parts a past, a present, and a future. But looking at it not from the eternal scene in heaven, but how God's plan of redemption works out in our history, in our lives. And in verses uh, 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 2, uh, The Apostle Paul is presenting what we were. The nature of man. We were dead in trespasses and sin. Um, And then in verses 4 through uh, 10, he talks about God's uh, saving us by grace through faith. And then in verses 11 through the end of the chapter, verse 22, the Apostle Paul talks about what the end of that salvation is. We now have nearness with God and nearness with one another. We who were once enemies, enemies of God, have we've been reconciled. And enemies with one another, Gentiles and Jews, rich and poor, black and white, those who speak Korean and, and German and English, in Christ, we are one. And that's what we look forward to. So in the, in the marvelous wisdom of God, chapter 2 mirrors chapter 1, but it does it in our life experience. as Chapter 1 did it from that heavenly perspective. Well, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we had begun earlier looking at this um, man's condition. So previously here in chapter 2, we have seen the nature of man who is dead in trespasses and sin. We have seen the enslaving powers, the world, the devil, and our own flesh. Our desires, our passions that enslave us. And this morning we'll be looking at the end of verse 3, the outcome of our condition. You follow along as I read uh, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were by nature the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind the natural man, and that would be all who are unregenerate, all who are outside of the redemptive work of Christ, even those who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and yet have not received by grace through faith the glorious redemption that God has promised them We were like the rest of mankind, dead in our trespasses and sin, enslaved by the influences of the world, by the power of the devil, and by our own wicked hearts and minds. And we were children of wrath. Now, people don't like that. People don't like to think of themselves as sinners. Even inside the church in general, a lot of respectable church members do not like that language. It's insulting to them that someone would call me a sinner. Why don't they look at the good things that I do? So many think that God is all love and is doing everything that he can to get people to love him. But beloved, this is not the God of the Bible. It is a God of their own imagination. Mankind creates a God in their own image. A God who will do whatever they want him to do. In reality, man thinks that he is the authority. He is not accountable to God. And he wants a God that will do the things he wants God to do. He wants a God who will be what man wants God to be. And so they create a God that they have authority over. They will not bow in submission to the God who created all things for His purposes, and for His glory. Their God is not the God of Ephesians 1 and 2, who is very detailed in His plan of redemption. They want a God who loves them the way they are, not a God who transforms them from what they were to what God wants them to be. They don't want to talk about being a sinner, They don't want to talk about being transformed into being a saint. They don't want to think that they have to become in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just love me, God, the way I am. Now, please don't misunderstand me here. This is an important point, and I'm going to touch on this just a little bit this morning. John 4, 1 John 4, verse 8 says, God is love. And so many want to proof text that for their idea that God loves everybody and and, and is doing everything he can to get everybody to love them. But those who proof text that to build their theology are taking that verse completely out of context. I'm going to look in 1 John chapter 4 for just a second here, a few moments here, uh, to put it into its context. Actually, the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle John in 1 John is addressing the church. Look at verse 7, immediately before verse 8. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Do you get the picture here? You say that you're a believer. One of the evidences of, of that transformed life is that you will love as God in you loves others. It's not a universal love of God. It is the, the love that God had for his own. When we were enemies, when we were rebelling against God, when we, like Adam, shook our fist in the face of God and said, I don't care what you tell me. I'm going to do what I want to do. And yet God's love for us drew us onto himself. John here is telling the believers that even though we have differences, we are to love one another. And by the way, that is a testimony of God's grace in our lives. You recall... In John 13, verse 35, Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is a display. It is a testimony of God's transforming grace in our lives. We don't fight with others now. We embrace them. Those that we differ with, we can differ with love. And acceptance. That's the difference that God has made in our lives. So in First John chapter 4, John is actually expounding on the words of Jesus that he had, John had recorded in the gospel of John. Look down here in First John 4 and verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us of his spirit. The whole passage wherein we have the phrase God is love is dealing with believers having the God of love inside of them and that love being spread to others. I want to briefly look at another passage that is often quoted, misquoted, for the love of God. Very, very popular passage. I want us to look at it in its context. John 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so many folks, even church-going folks, want to say, well, see, God loves everybody. And He just wants everybody to love Him. That's not what the verse says. Quite to the contrary, John 3.16 is saying that there is judgment coming. Look at this again. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son... That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What this verse is saying is, those who do not believe in God are prepared for judgment. Drop down to the commentary on 3.16 in verse 36. John 3, verse 36. I love it when the Bible explains itself. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 3:16 it's not a verse about God loving everybody and wanting everybody to love God and let's all get together and be happy. It's a verse that says, If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you're headed for judgment. The wrath of God is on you. It's quite different from what most people want to portray John 3.16 to say. Now, I believe John 3.16 and John 3.36. And I think those are very important verses in the Bible. And I think we ought to use them. We need to know what, John, what God is saying in these verses. It's not that God loves everybody. It's that those who believe in him will escape the wrath of God to come. Very clearly. Now that takes us back to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3. One other thing here before I get there. Those who want to manipulate the scriptures to meet what they like it to say, what they want it to say, are just like the prose evictus invictus. In eighteen eighty eight, William Ernest Henley captured this thought with these words. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. In other words, it's not what God says. I can do it my way. And that was popularized by Paul Anka's song in 1969 and sung by Frank Sinatra. And now the end is near. And so I face the final curtain. My friend, I say it clear. I state my case with certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. This is brazen audacity. In the face of God. I don't care what God has said. I'm going to live my life my way. And beloved. The wrath of God. Is on them. This philosophy. Which is so prevalent in our culture. Characterizes. Even much of modern religion. And has infiltrated the contemporary church. Though it is called individualism, it is really the idea that I will not be accountable to the God of Scripture. I will make my own rules. I will live my own way. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And if I am going to believe in a God, I will do it on my terms. Scripture clearly warns that the ways of man are not the ways of God. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and verse 14, we read, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They have to be spiritually understood, and the natural man is spiritually dead. Even though someone may be noble by men's standards, Scripture teaches that all men without Christ are under the wrath of God. In addition to Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, I add a few more verses. Ephesians 5, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians 3 and verse 6. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. In Romans 1, in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Oh, but there is hope. There is great hope. Having declared that all men are sinners by nature and by choice, and that all men are rightly under the wrath of God, Paul immediately turns to the mercy and grace of God, which the Lord willing will pick up at another time, beginning with verse 4 and following. But that's a future sermon. This morning I want to include a passage that brings together both the wrath of God and the redemptive love of God. Romans 5 verses 8 and 9. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we are saved from the wrath of God through him. Once again, the wrath of God is on all men without Christ. Christ alone makes a difference. Do you know that you are lost and under the wrath of God? I call you to trust in Christ alone for He can save you. Find in His death, His burial, His resurrection, God's full and complete atonement for you. Find in Christ God's only means of forgiveness, salvation, And everlasting life. John Calvin said, and I quote uh, in a translation from French, French to English. I don't speak French. John Calvin said, in the second chapter of Ephesians, Paul focuses on the riches of God's grace. He reminds the Ephesians how badly off they were before they were called to Christ. We never become properly conscious of how much we owe Christ until we have been reminded of how awful our condition was when we were still outside of him. Many of you may recall that uh, I graduated from Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Some of you may know the name Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was a Reformed theologian and Christian philosopher in the 20th century. And he came to Westminster Seminary when I was there and did a series of lectures. I was privileged to sit under his teaching there uh, for that period of time while he was doing the, that lecture series. said many things, but one thing stuck in my mind over the years. Francis Schaeffer said, and I paraphrase, something to the effect that if he only had one hour to spend with an unbeliever, he would spend the first 45 minutes talking about sin, the judgment of God, and the need for redemption. And then he would spend the final 15 minutes presenting the blood atonement of Christ Beloved, until a man is convinced that he is a sinner and under the wrath of God, he will see no need for a Savior. The natural man does not see himself as a sinner in need of a Savior. Rather, he rebels against the idea of a creator uh, to whom he is accountable. This is the reason secularism rules out the possibility of God. And insists that the world is millions and even billions of years old. And they come up with unbelievable ideas that they call science. They say that slime and ooze came up out of the waters and turned into a frog. And the frog turned into a mammal. And the mammal turned into a monkey. And a monkey eventually turned into a man. And this happened over millions and millions and millions of years The natural man uh, who begins with this premise that there is no God to whom he is accountable calls this science. The idea of frogs turning into a prince is the stuff that fairy tales are made of. And yet they learned men say that this is scientific. They call it the evolution of the species because they deny the existence of a God who created them a god who then they would be accountable to so they believe that we are gradually evolving into something better and you say well why is man after millions and even billions of years still killing one another their answer is quite simply well we're obviously not there yet we given a few more years maybe a few billion years we may finally reach utopia where we can get all along we can all get along and there will be no more killing or stealing or rape or lying or cheating now think about that for a moment they are offended by the gospel which calls us sinners in need of redemption Redemption that transforms us into saints. And their solution is billions and billions of years to get where we are today. And maybe in a few billion more years, we might finally get better. Now that is depressing. And they call that science. Beloved, those who reject God calling the idea of sinfulness, of humanity, a belittling and depressing. They need to look at the foolishness of what they're teaching. Before I make a few points of application this morning, I want to bring us to a few quotes from a sermon by Jonathan Edwards. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. 300 years ago, Jonathan Edwards was an American evangelist, theologian, and pastor. Edwards preached this sermon to his congregation in Enfield, Connecticut on 8 July, 1741. Early in his sermon, he described the impending doom of those who reject the gospel from the text, Their foot shall slide in due time. Quoting Deuteronomy 32 and verse 35. I give you a snippet from early on in that sermon. Jonathan Edwards said, The wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. Then, towards the end of the sermon, Edwards speaks of the end of those who refuse to repent and believe and makes application to those sitting in the pews of his church. Their case is now past all hope. They are crying in extreme misery and perfect despair. But here... You are in the land of the living in the house of God and have an opportunity to obtain salvation. Would not those poor, damned, helpless souls give for one day's opportunity such as you now enjoy? The wrath of God is upon all Outside of Christ. Now, Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, continues with a contrast to the helplessness and hopelessness of man who is dead in their trespasses and sin. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love wherewith he hath loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now the Lord willing, if I have an opportunity to come back, I'd like us to begin uh, with these uh, words that give us hope uh, to the helpless and the hopeless. But God. This morning we have seen some heavy theology. Some theology that may hurt some of you. It may bring great conviction that you are still facing the judgment of God because you have not fully trusted in Christ alone. But I want to bring in closing four applications, four applications. First, salvation. If you are here today without a sure and certain hope of heaven, O sinner, Christ is your only Savior. Cry out to God for mercy, that He may be pleased not to give you what you deserve. Cry out to God for grace, that He may be pleased to draw you onto Himself. I call you to repentance this morning. I call you to see that Christ Jesus is your only hope to escape the wrath of God. I call you to see in His suffering and death the full payment of your sins. I call you to believe that he is in his resurrection. You find the victory over your sin. I call you to trust in Christ alone for forgiveness of sins and the assurance of salvation and everlasting life. Second, obedience. If you are here today and and you know Christ is your savior. I call you not to be intimidated by the wickedness of sinners, but rather I call you to boldly testify to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, telling them that their only hope is in Christ, I call you to believe that God still has those whom he has chosen before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless before him. I call you to know that God will save all that he has chosen. None of them shall perish. None of them shall be lost. I call you to obedience to Christ's command to go into all the world and preach the gospel. I call you to Christ's final words before his ascension. You will receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea and Samaria, and on to the uttermost parts of the earth. Third, a word of encouragement. For those of you whom God may call to use to proclaim the gospel at home or to the ends of the earth, I call you to know that if they will not believe you, they are not rejecting you. They are rejecting God. I call you to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel God the Holy Spirit will convict and draw those that God the Father has chosen before the foundation of the world. Those for whom Christ died to redeem, they will be saved. Beloved, this is God's work. It is not always easy. Many have died while being faithful to this calling. But Isaiah 55, 11 says it so clearly. So shall my word be that goeth forth from out of my mouth it shall not return to me empty or void, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Beloved, if we will faithfully spread the gospel, God will call those that he has chosen. And yet we are his instruments to proclaim that message. I call you not to attempt to do this work of God by deceptive means of the world not to be a tickler of ears and tell people what they want to hear uh, you don't go out and say well god loves you and 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 you know you really need to get on his team you need to tell it like the word of god says it you're a sinner and you need a savior a word of salvation a word of obedience a word of encouragement And now a word of hope. We have seen in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, the hopelessness and helplessness of man without Christ. We have seen all of humanity as spiritually dead and in the bondage of the world, the devil, and even their own passions. We have seen them as sons of disobedience and children of wrath. Yet we are reminded of God's eternal plan of redemption from Ephesians chapter 1. And we look forward to God's mercy and grace in Ephesians 2 verses 4 and following. Where we shall see that God, what He is doing for the helpless and hopeless sinners. Those that He has chosen before the foundation of the world. Those for whom Christ died. And those whom the Holy Spirit will draw unto God. Those whom the Holy Spirit will seal and keep as an inheritance. Our hope is in the promise and the perseverance. Um, Our hope is in God and that is his promise to us and our perseverance. Listen to these words of Jesus. Also from the Gospel of John. Chapter 6, verses 38 and 39. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. I will raise them up in the last day. John 10, verses 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. John 17, verse 12, when Jesus is in his high priestly prayer to God before he was arrested, tried, crucified, he prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you gave me, I have guarded them. None of them is lost except the son of destruction. That the scriptures might be fulfilled. Beloved, our God reigns. We who were dead in trespasses and sin, the sons of disobedience, the children of wrath, have by grace been redeemed. That gives me great encouragement and great hope. We serve a great Savior. Let us pray. Father, continue to speak to our hearts. Convince and convict us of our sin. Continue to work in our lives to conform us more and more to the image of Christ. Do your perfect work in us for our good and for your glory. I pray in Jesus name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn. .org